Hi there, my name is John, and I'm in the campus ministry of the Guam ICC, and I also take care of this podcast. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode. The service we use to make podcasts is called Anchor. It's really simple to use and navigate. You can record, add sound effects and transitions, monetize your podcast, and post your podcast to other providers, such as Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The best part is, is that it's all free to use. Anchor is such an amazing way to start a podcast for any reason, so give it a try. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and let's get right into it. Good morning, church. Guys, I don't know what's going on, but... We're such a fired up church, we set off the fire alarm outside. (laughs) Just kidding, they're testing it. The title of the lesson is, The Light of the World. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Okay, come on. Come on. Come on, Bryson. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says that God said, let there be light. He saw that it was good, and it says that he separated light from darkness. In Exodus 10, the ninth plague against Egypt was what was called the plague of darkness. And the Bible says that the plague of darkness was so dark that it could be felt. And darkness spread over all of Egypt and all the people became afraid. In Psalm 18, verse 28, David writes, you Lord keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon, David's son, after having fallen away and got into a lot of sin, writes in chapter 2, verse 13, I saw that wisdom was better than folly. Just as light is better than darkness, the wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks around in darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. In Matthew 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah's prophecy of himself. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. Signifying that Jesus was to be their light. In Mark 15, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Bible says that in the sixth hour, darkness came over the land. It went from light to dark. For several hours. And it, this symbolized that without Jesus, this world is a dark, dark place. First Peter 2.9, the scripture that Andy shared today, says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Darkness signifying the unsaved without mercy and light, signifying those who are saved, having been pulled out of darkness by God's mercy. And we know that there's no twilight zone with that. You're either in the light or the darkness. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, when John sees his revelation of heaven, he literally is told that there is no lamps in heaven, there is no sun in heaven, because Jesus himself will be our light in heaven. And in John 9, which we'll study today is the meat of our sermon, the bottom line is that Jesus is the light of the world, 
And yet, I'd like for us to look right here in Matthew 5, verse 14. Matthew 5, 14. The Bible says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, it's so interesting that generations and years of prophecy pointed to Jesus as the light. And yet when Jesus comes into the picture, he says, hey, you're the light of the world. Not just Jesus, but those who follow Jesus are called to be that very same light to a lost world. There's only two questions we need to ask. Is number one, are you in the light? And number two, are you a light of the world? Let's now turn to John 9, and this will be where we're going to land for our study. In John 9, verse 1, we're going to read a very special story, and that's Jesus healed many people. He particularly healed a man that was born blind. In verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened, that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, it's very interesting how the Bible teaches that Jesus healed somebody that didn't catch a disease, didn't fall to an ailment, but he was born already blind. And the Bible teaches in Romans that when you see God's creation, it shows his invisible qualities. And so this would have been a guy that literally has never seen anything from the day he was born. If you could sort of imagine that. And, uh, you know, if you look on the Internet, uh, there's some incredible glasses that are made by some company. But um, these glasses can correct color blindness. And you can see multiple videos where uh, the family will get, every, get the whole family together to give these glasses to one of their family members who for their whole life has been colorblind. And uh, there's one where there's an, an older man, he's sort of sitting in the chair, he's like the, the father or the, the grandfather. And uh, they gave him the glasses and he doesn't know what it does, but he puts it on and uh, you can see that he's, he's shaking and he starts to cry. And he's just amazed at the different colors. And he sees the world in a way that he was never able to see it before. And at this time, if you had an ailment, the Jews thought that you were cursed by God for having an ailment. And yet this situation was a conundrum for them because this man was born blind. So what could this guy have done for him to be born cursed from God. We don't believe that his parents sinned and caused, you know, he paid for the sins of his parents. They didn't believe that. And so they asked Jesus the existential question, why is this happening? Or why has this happened? 
Ever asked that question before? You ask God, God, why is this happening to me? Why did I get cancer, God? Why can't I eat sweet things? Man, I love Coca-Cola. I want to have a cup of coffee when I want to, but I can't because I have this ailment of my body. Why is it that I need a chiropractor and I have a job that makes me live heavy things and overnight and such? Why does money always have to be a challenge for me? Why did I grow up the way that I did? Why did I have a parent that treated me this way? Why did I feel unfavored in school? Why is my husband, why is my wife this way? Why did we lose our child? And I think people can become so sidetracked and even embittered over wanting God to answer for the things that are outside of our control. I remember this past Friday when we had Bible talk, we were sharing our faith and I'll get into that more in a second, but me and Andy, we were, we were out sharing and we, we, we walked to this guy that was sitting just right there in the, in the food court. Mm-hmm. And you know, I came up to him and introduced herself and I showed, gave him a card and I told him about our church and about what we do and you know, we'd love for him to come join us for our Bible talk up at Port of Mocha. And he just looked at me and says, I'm an atheist. I says, okay. So I asked him, why, when did you decide to be an atheist? And he looked at me and he laughed and there was just pain. You could just feel the pain in his laughter. And he says, ever since my brother hung himself. I was like, whoa. And and he's laughing. I said, brother, I'm not laughing. I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. And I share with him about you know, some of the things that me and my wife have gone through. And I told him, you know, it hurts. And it drove me to try to find out what was going on in my life. I would still love for you to come. And it was, it was, it was awesome. He didn't end up coming. But when I shared with the guy next to him, and I was fumbling for a pen to try to put my contact on the thing, he said, hey, I have a pen for you. And he gave me a pen. And I took it and I said, thank you. So praying for that guy. I hope we can run, run into him again. But Jesus right here in the scriptures really answers all the why questions in our lives. Look at, in verse 3 he says, Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in his life. You see, when Jesus looked at and saw the hardship that people went through, He saw it as something that was purposely done by God in their life. To make their lives a message for other people to see. Something that would show people how God was using them and what God was doing in their life. You know, you could could see exactly what God is doing in somebody's life if you just look at the things that are happening in their life. He takes your mess and makes it into a message. He takes your test and makes it into a testimony. He takes a trial and makes it a triumph. He makes a victim into a victor. And Jesus would see this. He would see all the sicknesses and he would praise God. Because he could see him working in their lives. You know, sometimes we we have our minds totally twisted when it comes to hardship and trials. Because we just adopt the world's mentality. But we need to understand that this brings God glory in our lives. But 
encouragingly, it's not just you, but that's, if you ask me, about 99.99% of the Bible. People's lives, them going through trials, and then God's glory being displayed in a way we can understand. That's pretty cool, don't you think? You know, there's um, a story I heard that was an incredible story of, uh, of a sister that some of you know. But this is before she was a sister. So this woman lived in Hilo. And she was one of those women where you invited her and she said, Oh, you know, I want to come back to God, but I'm too busy. You ever get that? I'm just too busy for church. I'm too busy for this. And so she's too busy. So one day she decides to go hiking in Hilo and, and they go to a beautiful valley. It's like a rainforest. It rains a lot in Hilo, so it's a rainforest-type valley. And this was the kind where you had to take four-wheel drive to get in and four-wheel drive to get out. They didn't do that. They hiked in. So they're hiked in. And they're climbing up this valley, and about a 250-pound boulder just loosens up from the top. And it comes down, and it literally crushes her hand. And so this happens in an instant. So... No one knows exactly what happened, but they look and there's blood and literally the three fingers are hanging off the side of her hand. And so they're panicking, they're flipping out. But amazingly, the only orthopedic surgeon on the island was on the hike with them. And he was the best. He took her and put her in his four-wheel drive car, drove out of that area to the hospital and he operated on her hand within one hour of this event. So she, you know, she, she recovers fully and she's, um, well, she's recovering and she just can't work though because, you know, she, she's missing a hand. And so she gets called by one of the sisters and gets invited to church and says, hey, I can't work on Sundays, I'm free now. Great, so you're free to come to church. And so she comes to church She's invited out. She falls in love with the church. She studies the Bible. And she became your sister, Mel Bartholomew. Wow. You know, what gets out to people to church? We've got to understand something. It's not you that gets people out to church. Yeah. It's God that gets them out to church. Yeah. You give the invitation. They know who to go to. But something happens in their life. And that's what gets them to church. Right. Are you with me here? Yeah. You know, some of us may be going through some things right now. And maybe that's the question you've been asking is, why is this happening to me? But here's the thing. In verse 3, it says that all this happened so that God's works might be displayed in them. Amen. And that's, a point, that's, that's the first point. My first point is, there is no might in the light. Amen. You see, God will give you hardship whether you like it or not. Everybody gets a display. A dosage of it, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. But it's your choice to stand up underneath it. Amen. And you might get to display what God is able to accomplish through you. Not, see, not everybody displays that. But you see, if you're walking in the light, you will display what God is doing in your life. You know, one of the reasons why people don't see the victories of God in their life is simply because they don't stand up underneath the trials that God has given them. You know, sometimes I feel like we can be like a bent nail. If you, if you ever pounded nail into wood or you build something, 
and you know you're whacking it, and then you can just hit it to the side, and the nail goes thunk. Yeah. <laughs> Try to pull it back, get it straight up again, and then you hit it again, and it just goes thunk, other side. And it, it, it's very hard to work with, but I think we can be like that towards God, where we stand up at attention, God, I'm fired up, I'm so fired up, then the trial comes, and you're like thunk. I'm going to lay down now. And then God straightens you out, and you're fired up again, but then you get knocked to the other side. You know, in, in order to get through this life, we have to get some grit. Come on. Because you are, in many, many senses, a nail, and you're getting hammered. We say things like, God doesn't really love me. I'm just going to lay down. Dunk. You know, I don't really deserve this. I don't see what's going on. I just, I, I'm, I'm done. Dunk. And, uh, you know, we're really doing our best. But I think the thing we've got to understand is that doing your best does not produce a lack of trials. How are you handling the challenges in your life? Because, you see, the hardship's going to come. And it's come for, for many of us already. The hardship has come. The criticisms have come. But here's the thing, people will be unable to understand why you're still fired up when you're going through hardships and yet you're still fired up for God. Yeah. That's when your mess becomes a message. Are you with me? And that's what God wants because you're doing something that's not normal. You're doing something that's special. You see, the world can be fired up when life is good. Love is easy to do when things are lovable. You can be ultra committed to things that give a lot back to you, but when there's nothing given back, when it's hard to love, and when things are tough but you still do it, that's something that's truly special. Only then can you show people the true light of Jesus. There's no might without the light. Amen. Well, we read on in John chapter 9, in verse 6. And it says, after saying this, he spat on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him beg, uh, begging asked, isn't this the man, the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man that called Jesus made some money and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So this is a very interesting thing as to what Jesus does next. Because you can sort of imagine Jesus standing, he's looking at the guy, he's blind. And then he, the Bible says that he spits. And if you can sort of imagine, like, you breathe in. You know when you get the loogie right in the back of your throat? Yeah. You just imagine that. And then you spit on the ground. Like just imagine having a conversation with somebody. And then you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then just spit. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me, Jesus. Didn't know you are that kind of guy. But not just that. He's, he stoops down and he starts mixing it in the mud. As he's, oh, I'm listening, I'm listening, yeah. <laughs> he starts mixing it, and then he picks it up, and <laughs> on the blind guy's face, it's begging. Jesus, what are you doing? 
and yet he gives them instruction and says, wash it off. And if you've ever been spit on before, or if you can imagine that, it's not a fun day for you. And yet he washes it off and he's healed. And the Bible says that some of his friends saw him walking around and saying, hey, is that the same guy over there? He wasn't just changed physically. He was a totally different person. In some ways, the question everyone was asking was, what the heck is going on? And there's a saying that you might have heard. goes like this. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And there are those that simply ask, what happened? All these guys were the third person. They were sitting wondering, what just happened? And he, came, he tries to explain. He says, you know, yeah, this guy is somebody. I, never, I didn't see him. He just, but he spat in my face, and he told me to wash it off. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes no sense. Where is he? Uh, I don't know where he is. But what's interesting here is not just what happened, but the location as well. Jesus told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And what's important about that pool, the Bible talk, we talked about the pool of Bethesda. This is a different one. This is the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And historically, Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, in the early 700 BC, interesting, he was king at 25, same age I am. But he did something that really strengthened Jerusalem because you see their water supply came from an outside source. It came from the spring of Gahom in the Kindron Valley, which if you're an ancient city with walls, you're, that's a vulnerable thing because if you get sieged, they could block your water supply and then they can just uh, drought you out. You become weak and they can conquer you. So he saw, okay, this is a problem. So he actually had a tunnel dug under the city to go all the way to the spring, and that way the water would flow into the city and they'd have it that couldn't be blocked, that couldn't be messed with. But what's interesting here is that this is a symbolic representation of what God was going to do to his people. Because you see, the pool was called Siloam, which means scent. The water is symbolic of God and life. And so people are cut off from God, and yet Jesus was sent from outside the world to come inside the world that they can have life. And that's the pool that he told this man to wash in. So we understand, hey, not just physically, spiritually, when you wash yourself in the pool of Jesus, you can be healed and you can find the light. Point two is don't fight the light. You know, the reason why I believe Jesus used mud uh, and spit was really to make a point because there are other records of Jesus healing people in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Like he could just say, you're healed, and bam. Why did he get the mud, and why did he get the spit and put it all together? Yeah. Well, I've come to believe that it's not about what Jesus tells you to do or what you're told to do. It's the fact that it's Jesus telling you. A lot of things in the Bible don't make any sense. Like spitting in the mud, that makes no sense whatsoever for a medical uh, solution right there. There's other things that don't make sense either. Forgiveness, that doesn't make sense. Someone wronged me. I, I, you know, they deserve, I deserve retribution. Trust, 
Love your enemies. People get caught up even over baptism. Yeah. Why do I have to get baptized? I don't understand this makes sense. But we see that a lot of things in the Bible don't make sense to us when we rationalize it through our own lenses. I think one thing that doesn't make sense to a lot of people is the idea of submission. Why should I submit? Well, that's a lesson in itself. Submission is something you do when you don't agree with it. Yes. That's when you submit. But let's turn over to Luke chapter 5. Okay, we can explore this a little bit more. <clears throat> in Luke 5 verse 4. We find an earlier day of Jesus' ministry. And as we know, he's reaching out to a bunch of fishermen. In chapter 5 verse 4. It says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put off in deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night, <laughs> hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners and other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so full that even they began to sink. See, a lot of things in the Bible don't make any sense. You know, you think, man, like, I, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm trying to do everything that makes sense, but I got no commitments. I'm working hard, and it just doesn't seem like things are happening. And yet, I believe 100% if Jesus had told these guys to do anything else, it would have worked. It was a test to see if they would actually do what he'd say. You know, later on, if you read... They're fishing again, and they're not catching anything. And he says, you know what? The problem you guys have is you're putting the nets on the wrong side of the boat. You just got to put your nets on the other side of the boat, and then the fish will come in. What do you, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but the water is connected from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat. And fish often travel to the other side. But they did it, and there was another miraculous harvest. So the point is, I wonder how many miracles have been held back from God to us yeah. simply because Jesus said so is not enough for you. You know, only when you choose to obey Jesus because he said so, do you get to experience the miracle of your life becoming a light to other people. It's not supposed to make sense to you. But I think the question is, have you been fighting the light? Have you been coming up with your own reasons, your own ideas, your own excuses as to why the light doesn't make sense to you? You simply got to push all those things aside and do it because Jesus said so. Mm -hmm. After all, that's what our, that's what our belief is based on. We're, we're faith-based. And so it, it has nothing to do with uh, you know, what you think or what other people might think. It's wholly irrelevant, so you actually don't have to worry about those things. You just got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and magically all these things will be given to us. And that's really how it is. And that's really how it was. And I really want to lift up the church. I want to lift up the disciples that we've gone sharing at the mall. And, you know, that, like, our evangelism... How much you evangelize is not necessarily an immediate salvation issue for you. Yeah. But it is for the people who might be impacted by what you're doing. Yeah. 
And I'm, ha- I'm so encouraged because I believe we go out there simply because Jesus said so. And I'm happy that we've embraced life. But I know we're tempted. We're tempted thinking, man, is this really worth it? I don't, I don't really see how this is coming together right here. I haven't gotten a Bible study through the times we shared our faith, but those challenges I put before you are simply a test from God to see if Jesus said so can be enough for you. And one of the things Jesus said was he said very clearly to go and make disciples of all nations. So I think it's time for us to experience a miraculous catch, not because it makes sense, but because it's simply what Jesus said is enough. Amen. That said, I think to evangelize Guam, we got to come up with an awesome strategy. And after being here for a while, you know, part of it is you got to figure out what you don't know. And uh, I've come to believe that to evangelize Guam, we really got to be a family. And so the Bible talk name Familia is really growing on me. Amen. So, uh, you know, I'll be praying for that. That's, that's, I think that's an awesome idea because I think that's what it's going to take. And please be praying as I get further advice because I believe we need to make some changes. Amen. Change is good. Because, you see, different cultures value different things. Yes. And here, family is king. Family is before church even here. Yeah. And I would dare say that people are so committed to church because, hey, they're committed to their families. So what does that mean for us? It means simply that we must become a greater family than that of the families in Guam. Then we can evangelize Guam. So I'm so fired up for the five-minute fellowship breaks. And I will admit that, you know, when I came to Guam, that wasn't my mindset. I never was raised in a family that was really, like, that tight or that devoted to each other. I saw my family maybe like once a year, once every two years. Besides that, just my dad, single father, my sister, my mother. I had a broken family. So I had no concept of what it's like. But despite that, I could come to Guam and I could realize that, wow, this is something that's real and that's important and I got to change. And so, you know, naturally came in sort of Some would say numbers focused, because that's all I knew. But we all got to change our perspectives and do whatever it takes to win this island for Christ. And not make excuses, amen? Amen. So my prayer is that we can join together. And don't get discouraged if, if you don't have any Bible studies right away. Don't get discouraged. We got to figure out how to evangelize this island greater than how it was done before. Third point, let's go to John 9. On, we'll go back there. Come on, Bryce. John 9, 13. The story continues. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, born blind. Now the day in which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Ooh. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed it, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, the man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others asked, how is a sinner performed such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. Why have you, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. 
They still did not believe that he had been blind, born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is that your son, they asked? Is this the one they say was born blind? How is it he can now see? So, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said that because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he's of age, asked him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, he said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whatever, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then he asked again, Why did he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already. He put mud in it, and they put in my eyes, and then that's it. Why, do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? They hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. This doesn't make sense. The man answered, now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They replied, you were steeped from sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You know, <clears throat> at this time during the Sabbath, the Pharisees constructed a law that you could not perform medical procedures unless they were life-threatening. Now, think about it. This is not a man law of God's. It's a law of men. And so they heard about Jesus healing this guy's eyesight. He's blind, and now he can see. He doesn't have to beg anymore. In every way, his life was totally transformed. And before he could go out to celebrate, he was taken by the Pharisees and interrogated. They asked, you know, if, if he's from God, how could he heal on the Sabbath? And remember, that's man's law, not God's law. But also, if he was not from God, how is it that this person could have been healed at all? And the Pharisees, they couldn't see, unfortunately, what was so clear, that was so straightforward in front of them. In verse 34, their response was to kick this formerly blind man out of the synagogue because they didn't agree with the interpretation. It didn't fit their ideology. And so they kicked him out. In verse 35, the Bible says, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when they found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Wow. We'll stop there. So the Bible says that Jesus hears about it, and he goes and finds it. And John notes this very purposefully to mention that Jesus was not in the synagogue. He was outside of the synagogue. There is a distinction between the two here. But I think also interestingly implied by John, who describes Jesus as the light of the world, there is no light in the synagogue. 
There were no miracles in the synagogue. It says, hey, this never happened before. No one's ever heard of a man born blind being healed, and yet here it's happened. And it's amazing to me how dark, how, how blinding the darkness really is to people. For me, I remember uh, I would drive Uber and I would wash my car at night because that was like a time I was free. So I had like waterless car wash and I'd wash it at night and it looks really good. I go back to bed, I come in the morning and be like, where are all these spots in the car? It looks terrible. Well, I had a black car and it was nighttime. And so I don't suggest that you even clean a car or even buy a car at night because I've heard stories of people buying a car and it looks great and they look at in the morning and it's like, it looks terrible. You just can't see things clearly. Yeah. And so the point here is that there are so many people that are just fumbling in the dark here today. And yet when Jesus looks down, we've got to adopt the mindset of Jesus. When he looks down, he doesn't see the divisions as we see them. Yeah. The world is so political today. Yeah. They see people as, okay, you're black, you're white, you're female, you know, you're bisexual, you're homosexual, you're... Uh, you know, it's group identity politics where you're, you're defined by, like, your subdivision in society. Jesus doesn't see any of those things. Yeah. It's obvious through who he touched and who he interacted with. He simply saw people as in the light or in the dark. Uh-huh. And again, there's no twilight zone. This is how we have to see people. Amen. And we have to act accordingly. You see someone in the light? Hey, keep them in the light. Yeah. You see someone in the dark? You rescue them from the dark. By building the church, am I making this place awesome for God? If only we could see what God can see. People put such a good front, but they're trying to figure things out. They have, they have like hurts and horrors within that they've never shared with anybody. And yet, God sees right through all those things. And the answer has always been Jesus. And so, I'm fired up for our Harvest Sunday coming up in two weeks. And not because it's like some spectacular life-changing event like the clubs would promote for their events. This is like the only going to happen here in 2018. It's going to be the greatest ever was, ever will be. Like, no, I don't believe in any of that for a church service. The simple reason why I'm fired up about it is because Jesus is going to be there. You see, what makes it special is not the place. It's not even the people. It's Jesus, his word, and his love. And really, I want to encourage you, our job is simply to introduce people to Jesus. There's nothing else that can cure their sadness. There's nothing else that can cure their pain and there is no sight without the light. What makes church awesome is the light of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So as we close out, we see that there is an amazing transformation. But I think you'd notice something that is truly astounding in the man's heart as well. Mm-hmm. See, in chapter 9, verse 11, he refers to Jesus as a man. When questioned in verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. And yet when he sees him face to face, after the fact, he calls him Lord and worships him. Amen. See, to this man and to all of us, Jesus was first a man. Then he became a prophet, something maybe a bit more. 
But then he became Lord. You know, to so many on this island, Jesus is simply a man. To so many, Jesus is simply a prophet. But we need to help people to understand that Jesus is Lord. And when he becomes your Lord, that changes everything about your life. Light, there's uh, something called light uh, deprivation as a form of torture. You might have heard of it. Torture where they just, they just uh, take away your senses or they take away your ability to sense things. And one of those things is light. And uh, there's some consequences when it comes to um, not having light that I think is very insightful. First is there's an intense anxiety that comes on you. You start to hallucinate. You don't see things clearly because you can't see anything. So your mind will literally construct something for you to see. You get bizarre thoughts like, wow, why would I ever think that? And yet if you stay in darkness long enough, you'll accept them as normal existence. You temporarily become senseless. You become numb. You become disconnected. And finally, you, you experience a crippling depression. And uh, that's, that you can observe that in the northern uh, countries, Canada, Alaska, they get months of darkness. People get depressed. They get snowed in and, you know, they just say, don't worry, when summer comes, you, you'll, be, you'll be happy again. It's just winter. But little do they realize it's not a physical darkness that you need to worry about. It's a spiritual darkness. So this man, what we learned from his life is he has been without sight his whole life. And at the point of his sight being restored, his response was all about worshiping Jesus. So my prayer is that yours can be the same. And I, I do want to say one last thing. For me, I see how God has given me so much. And you know, you look back and you think, man, I gave up so much to be a disciple. I didn't give up anything to be a disciple. I received so much more. And I look forward to the day that I have lived more years as a disciple than a non-disciple. That's going to be really the day. I do want to be grateful for the light given to me, but I want to be an even greater light for the world. But for that to happen, i got to remember, there's no might in the light. Don't fight the light, and there's no sight without the light. I love you guys. Thank you.